Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital or you are looking to get your company acquired or just need some sound financial planning and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at PantheraAdvisors.com or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a very exciting guest, you know, a guest that uh, is doing it. So uh, talking about scaling, building, financing, I mean, you name it. I think that it's going to be quite interesting and that you are all going to be learning quite a bit. So I guess without further ado, I'd like to welcome our guest today, Asesh Sarkar. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much. So originally born and raised there in the UK. So how was life growing up? Uh, life was good. I kind of uh, born in, uh, in in a city in in, in a place uh, called uh, called Leicester. Yeah, you know, had a, an older brother, twelve years uh, older than me, so, so he left for university, and so then it was with me with my parents. And then yeah, kind of you know had a had a good a good time. And you definitely started quite a bit of business, not only for undergrad, but then also you did your MBA and and then this whole thing around consulting. I mean, you've been quite a consultant, so. So why starting so much business and, and why going into consulting? I guess I always uh, wanted to be an entrepreneur. And so I thought I would um, you know, kind of start with you know, a degree in business yeah, and, and that would kind of help. And then um, during the early years, uh, yeah, I never quite landed on, on an idea. And so I thought, actually, if, if I become a consultant, that, that would help develop some of the kind of core, uh, kind of core skills, uh, kind of skills needed. Um, and then what I really found is that, you know, because we were doing different projects in different sectors, you work at quite a senior level. Um, it allowed me to experience a kind of lot, lot of good things kind of early on, early on in career. So, yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, I was kind of pleased. You know, I was 35 when, when I started, you know, my entrepreneurial journey. Um, and so you know, at the time I was like, you know, I was doing well. I kind of enjoyed it. I became a partner of a consulting firm, but my heart was always in being an entrepreneur. But with, with the benefit of hindsight, I'm kind of very pleased I had that grounding um, and, and that I kind of started an entrepreneur journey when I did. So why do they say that consultants make great entrepreneurs? <laughs> it's a good it's a good question. In general, to be honest, I'm not sure they do in that uh, you know, what, what I find with consulting is that you know quite often you're focused on very big organizations Quite often, you're navigating politics of the organization. You're trying to kind of, you know, and, and, and in many ways, you're kind of playing a corporate game. And so, you know, for, for me, I was good at playing the game. I enjoyed it. You know, I was able to do, you know, kind of progress within that system. But actually, when you're a startup, and then quite often when you're in a corporate, you're very far from the customer. Uh, whereas actually, the opposite is the case in a startup, which is 
you know, you pretty much start with the customer, you start from the ground up and you kind of build outwards. There's not enough people to really do any politicking with. Um, you don't have a you know association with a big corporate that can help you. So you pretty much kind of start start. So yeah, I found and, and actually one of the things I you know whilst I was good in the corporate world, you know for me I really enjoy business and for me business you know when you're doing it in an entrepreneurial environment is really what it's about for me as opposed to some of the you know when any organization becomes big you know, navigating, you, you, you focus on the business of navigating organization as a focus, as opposed to the business of business. Uh, and for me, what I was really keen on is, is not just navigating an organization, but actually, you know, core business, understanding users, scaling, and so on. And so, yeah, I, I was pleased to kind of make the transition when I, when I did. And what was that process like of really coming across the idea of salary finance? I mean, you, let's say, are doing all these years, you know, as a consultant. Then at 35, you know, it's really when you started the business, as you were saying. But but what was that process from identifying, you know, that need or that problem to actually taking it all the way across, incubating it and, and bringing it to life? I mean, perhaps what was that uh, process, that journey like, and that specific event that happened that triggered and that pushed you over the edge to say, okay, you know, screw this, let's do this. So I had a couple of false starts. Uh, and so, you know, a couple of times I had, come up with ideas, done it on the side of the desk. And it kind of made, made me realize that, you know, it, it's not just about a great idea. And actually, I had then seen in future years, you know, other people take, do, to take similar concepts and actually become very successful with it. And so there's a general feeling I had, which is, you know, if you had, it's not necessarily just the quality of the idea, it's also the quality of execution. And, and that generally doesn't happen off the side of your desk. And so, you know, for, for me, it kind of concluded that if I was ever going to be an entrepreneur, then, you know, I wanted to do it in a big way. And that I would need to kind of commit, you know, kind of commit to it. The, the the kind of real pivotal moment for me was that you know I, I just become a partner at a consulting firm, and you know worked very hard to kind of get there. And then I kind of really concluded that if I was going to be an entrepreneur, really now was the time because once you get into a partnership, actually you need to do, you know, a good number of years in that partnership to kind of gain equity value. There's kind of no point being kind of half, uh, kind of half it. Um, and and for me, what was going to happen is every year you become a partner in a consulting firm the kind of opportunity cost becomes bigger. And then I knew it would just get harder and harder. So I thought, okay, look, I've become a partner, you know, nice land, uh, nice um, draw a line in the sand. And at, at the same time, you know, I'd come up, you know, I, I really kind of developed the idea around salary finance. And so you know, I, ha- I had the idea, you know, I felt like I had, you know, achieved something, uh, you know, a, a nice kind of milestone in my corporate career. Um, and then I was also very fortunate to be able to raise capital on it as well. Uh, and so it kind of felt, felt like the three of those things meant for me it was the right time to kind of make that make that plunge. Whereas before, you know, either it wasn't quite the right idea, I wasn't confident enough to leave on it, um, and 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 I was unsuccessful in raising capital at the at, at the time. So yeah, the, the, the kind of the triangle of great idea, you know, right moment, kind of personally, professionally, and and funding were, were the key the key things. So in this case, I mean, we're talking about a good idea. I mean, were there any steps that you took in order to validate it and to make sure that you were taking the leap of faith, you know, perhaps and through a, through a tunnel that there was cheese at the end of the tunnel? Yeah, so I, I would say a lot of it was, you know, instinct driven and, and a lot of it, you know, subsequently luck driven. And so, you know, the, the, the idea, you know, the, the business I run, salary finance. So um, I, I guess two things resonated. One was analytical reasoning and, and the second was kind of you know emotional reasoning and so you know ultimately um and then you know, behind all of this was 
um, a line of thinking I'd been developing over a number of years, which, which was around this concept of business with social purpose. Um, and increasingly, what I could see was in the not-for-profit world, you know, actually, uh, you know, a real long tail of not-for-profits, good intentions, definitely doing good, but not necessarily scaling, and 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 a general kind of halo effect, if you work in a not-for-profit, that you must be you must be great. And then I kind of saw lots of people in the commercial world, really high talent, achieving brilliant things. But the outcome of that, again, not necessarily delivering kind of great stuff for, for the world. And so I, I kind of thought about this kind of concept of where you try to align both, where you have the best talent working on really important things, commercially viable, but also, you know, with an eye to actually, from a society perspective, delivering something something of value. And, and it just kind of struck me that, you know, for, for me, the worlds of non-for-profit and commerce didn't need to completely operate separately, that there could be a Venn diagram where certain ideas would operate in the middle and, and it would benefit benefit everyone. And so within that, when it came to consumer finance, um, I guess kind of two, two, thing, two, two things happen in parallel. One is, um, uh, you know, I have two children, we have a nanny, um, and it just shocked me how hard it was for our children's nanny to get access to finance. And, and in many ways, I felt very guilty. I worked in the city, I worked in, in banks as a consultant, I had loans, I would pay 5% for those loans. Uh, my, my children's nanny would work very hard because my children are very yeah, active, uh, but but she couldn't access bank finance. She would be you know using high cost credit cards, payday loans, and so every month we would pay her, but a, sing- a significant portion of income would just go on this kind of high cost credit. And so I, I could kind of see how you know how inequality happens, which is you know basically for me someone that was relatively high paid and you know uh, you know getting low low access capital, someone that was more middle middle income, you know, they would find it much difficult. Uh, but, but then equally uh, on the rational side, I could see from working in banks that it wasn't necessarily bad actors. It weren't the, ba- the banks saying, look, you know, these poor people, let's make as much money we can from them. Basically, they're just looking at the economics. They're looking at, you know, the risk and pricing in the risk. But what, what I could see is two, I was kind of sat in the middle of these two things, which is one is I could see the impact a lack of finance has to someone in a middle to low income kind of setting. And I could see on the banks, there weren't necessarily bad actors trying to do anything wrong. And, and I could see how this was kind of normalizing to, to kind of bad effect. Um, and then I, then I kind of take it one step further around looking at, you know, there is no good or service in the world which has this dynamic where the less you earn, the higher price you pay. Um, it's, it's kind of like, you know, uh, you know, going to a sandwich shop and a rich person paying a pound for a sandwich and a poor person paying 10 pounds. Like, like it just wouldn't be acceptable. When it comes to money, it's kind of fully, fully normalized. So, so essentially what I'd done for my children's nanny is I'd given an employee loan. We paid off her debts. I collected a small amount from her paycheck each pay period because I knew I was going to get paid. I didn't, you know, I obviously didn't charge her any interest, but, but, but I kind of got, got, got kind of comfortable with this concept around as an employer of one, I had made a real difference for her using the security of the paycheck. Um, and then I thought about, okay, what about if we do this on a much bigger case? What if we work with much bigger employers? Those employers offer their employees financial wellness benefits using the fact that they know they're employed, they know how long they've been there, and they have access to the payroll to become top of the payment, payment hierarchy. So, so and, and then it, it kind of chimed with my business with a social purpose, because, you know, my case to employers would be that, look, your employees are really suffering here, and you can help them. Um, so so th- those three kind of things came together. The emotional, I could see, you know, how helping my children's nanny had made a big difference to her individually. I could see from a bank perspective, they'd got into this cycle of a regressive model. And I could see how by working through employers, we could really, really change the economics and do something at, at, at kind of scale. So 
so yeah, th those three things coming together, you know, helped give me confidence that the model would have, um, you know, at least some merit giving it giving it a go. Very cool. And and you were talking about raising capital too earlier. How much how much capital have you guys raised for salary finance? So over the four rounds now, we've raised just under a hundred million pounds. Okay, got it. And how has it been like the fundraising journey for you? It get, it gets easier. So, so I, I would say, particularly in the UK, raising seed capital is very very difficult. It's just in kind of very very kind of short supply. Um, so salary finance operate, operates across the UK and the US. Um, and so yeah, what what I see in the US is just a lot more uh, you know uh, equity available for 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 kind of seed seed stage. Um, you know, I, I was lucky when it came to seed stage that you know I'd established some credibility to the market. Um, and so I had a combination of VC, Angel, and then ultimately who I raised capital from at the seed stage was an organization called Ben Shalcott. Um, and, and they're kind of what they term venture builders. And so they are kind of more operators. They do fewer transactions, but much more deeply involved involved in it. Uh, and what I liked about them is a big focus on being operators rather than financiers. They understand the numbers, but you know, where, where they really excel is being good good operators. Um, and, and for me, with my kind of consulting background um you know i quite liked the kind of you know the operational uh, you know people who, who had built lots of companies themselves and i could really kind of really resonate with so um yeah you know getting the first and, and as i said with previous ideas i had been successful and uh, unsuccessful raising money so, so so for this one i had a good fortune of having a range of options but very difficult uh, i guess easier as you kind of get further into your career uh, and then for me, I, I kind of chose the, the kind of venture builder route over, over above uh, venture capital or, or, or angel capital. Got it. And so for a business like this, I mean, I would assume that you also have some some depth, correct, to be able to to put it into the operations. So how how much have yeah. you guys raised on that on that front? Yeah. So we've raised, um, you know, kind of well over half a billion pounds now. Half a billion, and that's you know, like how how do you put that into perspective? You know, uh, what what's the racing equity versus racing debt. I mean, how how that all comes into place, and and how do you how 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 should an entrepreneur think about that? Yeah, so you know, equity, I guess, is you know the the kind of operating capital of the business, and that that's kind of really, yeah. I would say particularly in the early stages, um, you know, whilst we have raised a lot of capital now, you know, we have done it in stages, and pretty much, um, you know, you you have all of these these kind of proof points, and so the first proof point for us was, you know, can we win a client? You know, does this proposition resonate? Do do executives and big companies care enough about their employees to solve this? And then we kind of got comfortable with that. Then the next kind of proof point was, okay, we've got into some employers, but do employees need this product? Are they going to take it up? Then we got comfortable with that. Then we got like, okay, hey, when we lend these employees money, are they going to pay us back? Is it going to work economically? Um, and then we kind of got comfortable that, okay, yeah, so that's all working, but can we scale it? It's great that it worked in two companies. Can it work in thousands of companies? Um, and so every time you get more confident and you prove these proof points, you're kind of ready for the next stage of equity. And I would say me personally, you know, I, I take, when I take money in from an equity investor, whether an institution or a private individual, you know, for me, that's their money. They've worked hard for it, and so I, you know, you know I, I, I kind of take that with a lot of responsibility. So I, I never look to raise more than we need to get to the next proof point. Up until where we are now, where we have many, if not all, of the proof points, uh, and now it's really a kind of, you know, a kind of, you know, kind of multiplying stage, stage game. Uh, on on the debt side, it's a bit different, and so when when it comes to funding consumer loans through debt, 
um, you know, at the beginning, you have no data uh, and people who work in traditional debt finance, they love data. And so at, at that stage, you know, you have to work pretty hard. Um, and then actually during the beginning stages, we actually had to use equity to do our first kind of debt, uh, kind of debt funding. Um, and then we, we fast forward to kind of get to where we are today, which is, you know, we've done a half a billion pounds in employee loans, using employment data, collecting repayments on payroll. Um, you know, but basically one of the, if not the best performing consumer asset classes um, has performed even better through kind of COVID. Um, and so now when we go out to raise debt funding, you know, there is a, you know, there's a queue of people. There's nothing not to like about the model. It's socially progressive. We've got, you know, tons of outcome data. It's proven over the cycle. Um, so, yeah, as you progress, it's just a kind of a data game at that point. Um, and, and, you know, and things get easier. On the equity side, yeah, it's kind of very much around, you know, what, what what is the growth levers and how much of those have you have you proven? Got it. And in terms of, you know, you were you were alluding to this, you know, in terms of like scope of the operation size. I mean, anything that you can share, you know, even like number of employees. I mean, whatever you feel comfortable sharing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so we have 150 people in the UK. We have about 40 people in the US, and we have about 50 people in in India. Very cool. And then what's what's in store for salary finance? I mean, if if you were able to, let's say, go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision is fully realized, what does that world look like? So it basically looks like, you know, with, with, with finance, you have lots of different channels. You know, you can go to your bank, you can go to a neobank, you can go to a specialist. You know, for us, we believe that if you access finance through the workplace as an employee benefit, there's a lot of advantages to that. Um, you know, you cut out the cost of acquisition so you can pass that on to the employee. Um, there is no fraud. You collect repayments on payroll. You can design it. Lots of people don't get paid monthly, like bank products are done. So you can, you know, you can design the repayments to match someone's pay cycle. So, so for us, a world where the majority of the finance you consume is via is through the benefit of your employer, uh, where you are getting it as an employee benefit, um, and and it just becomes completely mainstream. And so, so in, in the UK, for example. You know, we now reach about three and a half million employees across 600 big, uh, big companies. Um, so 20% of the FTSE 100, one in four hospital trusts, eight of the big 10 supermarkets. So it's, it's kind of getting mainstream. So, so we reach about two in 10 working people in the UK. Uh, you know, for, for me, mainstream is when it's six or seven uh, in six or seven people of every um, kind of 10 in the UK, um, can, you know, actually can access their primary finance products through the employer as an employee benefit. US, we're earlier stage, but kind of making good, uh, kind of good traction. Um, and, you know, we, we would love to see some, some kind of similar growth there as well. Uh, and then hopefully kind of more, more countries to follow post, post that. Very cool. And one of the typical questions that, that I ask the, the guests that come on the show, I says is, I mean, you've been at it now for about six years. You know, during your mm -hmm. consulting years, also, you learned quite a bit. So I guess if you had the opportunity of going into a time machine and you go back in time, and you have the opportunity of having a chat with that younger self, with, with younger Asesh. What would be the one piece of advice that you would give yourself, your younger self, before launching a business? And why, given what you know now? You know, I would say, and, and actually, you know, I probably don't even take this advice today, which is, you know, I am fairly conservative. Like I say, I, I take a lot, of, uh, a lot of responsibility for the equity capital we bring in. Um, and so, so when you're a bit conservative, uh, you, you're not necessarily 
uh, you, you're, you're kind of limiting the downside, but when you limit the downside, you're also limiting the upside. Um, and so, you know, for me, when I see the real breakthrough entrepreneurs, you know, that there's also, they, they kind of take that out of their brain in terms of limiting the downside. They're just fully focusing on, on the upside. And so, so for me, I've always been a bit more balanced about the two, which is, yes, you know, I finance, you know, we have, you know, we are for every investor is invested in us, you know, we are a financially very successful business and everything's progressing as it should. Um, but, but ultimately, you know, we, you, you always want to be 10 times bigger. And so, so for me, you know, how you can program your mind to protect the downside, but really focus on the up is quite, is, is quite key. And then there was a balance because reality is most startups fail. And so having some downside protection is a good thing that you're careful with money and all of those types of things. Uh, but, but, but equally, if you're going to go through it, then, then there's a lot to be said about being uh, kind of fearless in your pursuit of, uh, of scale as well. Very cool. And, you know, obviously you were talking there about the growth and, and the number of employees that you've had. I mean, what has been, let's say, your biggest lesson around people? Yeah, it's a very good, uh, it's a very good question. So, so learned really enormous, uh, enormous amounts. Um, uh, and, and we have, uh, you know, we, 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 so I used to go, we have a leadership coach that comes in to help me and, and our executive team. It's always called legitimate leadership. And kind of one of the things I've really realized, uh, uh, you know, as you as you kind of progress, is at the beginning you think a great leader is someone who leads themselves and everyone else kind of follows. And particularly when you're an entrepreneur, you kind of think, "Wow, I came up with this idea. You know, I you know have lots of data points, and everyone should just follow." And and you know, probably as we got two and a half years in, it, it, and and actually, you know. People would talk about leadership coaches, and I was like, "Look, I have zero time for leadership coaches. Like, you know, I'm doing this in the real world. I don't need, I don't need a coach." But but when we bought a leadership coach in, and we're, we're fortunate to get a real, real good one, it, it kind of really flipped our mindset around. It's no, it's not it's not about kind of you as an individual. It's more about how you can build an organization of people that have the setup to to kind of succeed individually, and by them succeeding, kind of you succeeding. Um, and so, so for me, that that kind of real shift in mindset from what can I do to grow this business quickest to what can I do to have a brilliant group of people around me that are enabled, motivated, understand, um, have blockers removed, and what and and then you just kind of multiply your your ability to kind of really really scale. Yes. Yeah, so, so so for me, it's been a real change from you know starting as an entrepreneur where you start yourself, you know maybe with some kind of co-founders through to us and actually everything you're doing to drive through to you get a certain point of scale where actually it no longer becomes about you. Um, it's really about the quality of your team, the quality of your leadership, the quality of the environment. And that's really kind of what sees you, uh, kind of sees you through. It doesn't matter how much you work, how good you are, you can never replicate uh, the force uh, of, of a big organization functioning you know, on, on, on point. Absolutely. As they say, you can go faster alone, but farther when you go together. So, Asesh, for the people that are listening what is the, and watching, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Um, I'm on LinkedIn, and, and I'm very, very happy to uh, connect with people. Amazing. Well, Asesh, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show today. Very happy to be here. Thank you for having me. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, Share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, 
you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.